0: Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome. I'm your host, Tony D'Urso. I
1: broadcast every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Influencers. From the steady growth of my large audience, I can tell you love my interviews with some very successful people. And I love hearing about the inspiration you get from their life as you learn more about being a great entrepreneur. There's a lot of great advice and guidance in these interviews for you. Thanks for listening. Also, you can listen to all of our shows on most podcast platforms. If you have Apple Podcasts, please subscribe. Now, before we get going, here's a big thank you to some amazing sponsors of our show. Please stay tuned for an important message from Rothy's about women's shoes, which my wife says are the best she ever wore. And listen for a vital message from LinkedIn on how the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. More info on them just ahead, so please stay tuned. Today's show is about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. All right, here's some info on Annalisa. Annalisa Parent helps entrepreneurs finish, publish, and sell their expert books. She's the CEO of Laurel Elite Books, a two-time Teacher of the Year nominee, and a recipient of the French Congressional Medal of Honor. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Annalisa. I am honored to have such a well-published author with us. Well, thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here with you as well. Annalisa, I am very excited to speak with you on what we're going to go over because I am a fellow author and I am... Voraciously interested in anything that will help me in my books. But before we get into writing books and all that, first things first, I'd love to know how did it all start for you? What's your backstory?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. It goes way back to whenever I could talk, I think. So, at a very early age, I was a storyteller just from the beginning. And uh, my poor mom, she lived to tell. Uh, I, I always love to tell stories. As soon as I could write and write well, I created a family magazine. Writing and t- storytelling had me hooked from the beginning. So I actually published my first poem when I was nine years old. I got to read it at the state house in my home state of New Hampshire. And, you know, published several times throughout my childhood and became a journalist and a teacher of writing. And it was a natural progression into helping other people to tell their story. And my focus is really helping them to tell it well so that other people can read it and understand it and that it's really making an impact in the world. That's what I really care about because I feel like we all have a story uh, and I'm very, very passionate about helping people to tell it and engage in a conversation, getting us all talking and sharing together.
1: I like that. And I know that you're part Italian, and I think that's also perhaps a good reason. I'm trying to be a little a little silly here. <laughs> it's part of the gift of gab. I think it comes naturally to Italians, and I think you got that essence. <laughs>
2: I, I sure did. And, you know, I can even talk to you over the airwaves and uh, do so without waving my hands most of the time.
1: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Annalisa, One thing I want to ask is, you're a two-time Teacher of the Year nominee. Can you give us a little more on what that is all about and what you teach and so forth?
2: Absolutely. So, I was very honored to be nominated twice uh, and to win a Governor's Institute Award for Excellence in Teaching because of my ability to meet every student's need back in the day. So, I have actually taught every grade from pre-K through graduate school. And not only that, but I studied neuroscience and specifically its application to how the brain learns and creates the best. So I was able to take that knowledge into the classroom and help all learners interface with content and do so in a way that was meaningful to them and brought them to a point of understanding. And these days when I work with my writers, I use that same neuroscience knowledge to help them find their best writer, to never have writer's block, to always feel like it's coming so very easily and they don't know why. Uh, It's because I have put the neuroscience spell on them and they don't even know it. They're really in creative flow where they should be to get the words out, to communicate their ideas well and to feel confidence
1: as they're doing it. Those are all really important to me. I like that. Very good on that. I don't have writer's block. I just can write like the wind. It must be the <laughs> Italian.
2: <laughs> well, you know, as far as that's concerned, I think there are two kinds of writers. There are the kinds who, you know, write a word and uh, erase it. Oscar Wilde said, this morning I put in a comma, this afternoon I took it out. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. There are the kind of writers, and then there are the verbose writers whose task it is later to then reduce.
1: <laughs> exactly. Another thing before we get into writing, you may have mentioned this, but you won, you received the French Congressional Medal of Honor. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, that was a really amazing moment of my life. First, I was selected to be a member of a five-person team. We went to France and we spent four weeks touring around France on a peace promoting tour. So we were speaking in French to large groups of people about American and Quebec culture. And as part of that tour, uh, during a ceremony, much to our surprise, each of us, each of the five members of the research team were uh, awarded the French Congressional Medal of Honor. So I have a plaque. Um, It's the equivalent of the French Congressional of our Congress. Um, it's from the Assemblée Nationale, so I have a plaque with my name on it, and uh, it's engraved, and oh, it's it's quite an honor, and it's a beautiful
1: piece. C'est très bon. I love that. <laughs> very interesting and fascinating. What a career you have, and now, the moment we're all waiting for, I want to get into books and writing, and perhaps let's start at the very basic. We speak to a lot of entrepreneurs on my show, solopreneurs, medium-sized businesses, and so forth. Let's Start from what does a book really do for a person, for an entrepreneur? Why write a book? Is a
2: great
1: question.
2: Uh, And I'm just going to back it up and talk a little bit about the different types of entrepreneur books that there are. So uh, we've got the business card book, which is a brief introduction. Uh, We've got the quote books that people put together. We have blog compilations. All of those are different types of books entrepreneurs might put together. That's not what I recommend or specialize in. The kind of book that I do is a client magnet book. It's the kind of book that starts the conversation with that potential client. And Tony, I like to call it a time machine because this book acts for you when you're not there, you know, across the world at two in the morning when you're asleep, you're still able to have this conversation with someone. And we all know in business that the know, like, trust factor is extremely important. And you're starting that conversation creating the know, like, and trust factor before you even met the person. And I can tell you just empirically from my own experience with my book, by the time I get people on the phone, they're on the phone because they already love me. They're already eager to work with me. Now, the other awesome thing that it does is that all the people who read my book and say, meh, not for me, they're not gonna get on the phone with me, right? So it's a time saver. Uh, the conversations are a lot easier around how I can help people And I end up with people who resonate with the way that I interface in the world. So those are just a few of the benefits that a a well-written book can offer to an entrepreneur, small business owner
1: out there in the world. I'd like you to educate me, correct me. I'm willing to be corrected as well as perhaps any other entrepreneurs and businessmen out there. When I write a book, I've written several I write to educate, to give some information, to impart some wisdom, and I've got more books coming out to do the same. I personally never think of a book, and I, sh- I know I should, as like an expanded business card or anything like that, And but I already know that my books would have that if someone likes the information that I am imparting and the wisdom that I have in the book. They would want to do business with me or whatever. Is that important these days? Is that a new trend? Or is this a new trend you, you see starting? Why write a book to be an expanded business card as opposed to explaining and detailing out how to perform in some action or activity?
2: Well, Tony, I wish I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, <all> right. Well, <laughs> no, I, and I say that because it, it is something that I see out there a lot. Uh, some coach somewhere is recommending this. I don't know who it is. And, you know, I end up frequently cleaning up the mess of the business card book that the entrepreneur thought was going to launch them and get them all of this business. Um, You know, they were told nobody ever throws away a book. This is going to be a valuable commodity in the marketplace. And it it really isn't. You know, 50% of any books that are purchased are even read. And so if you think about that, Uh, It's a little scary, first of all. But secondly, you want a book that's readable, that people are really going to want to get the information from, that they're going to get valuable content and a conversation from. So you stumped me there, Tony. I don't know. And I don't necessarily want to know. And I don't mean that in a rude way. I just I've seen that it doesn't work. I understand why it doesn't work. Uh, I feel like maybe people are encouraged to write them because they're shorter. Maybe they're a little easier. And, you know, writing can be intimidating. You and I have no problem talking and writing. We're very verbal people. Not all people feel that way. And so they might feel like this business card book is is an interesting interface or a way to get their toes wet before they jump in the water. But, you know, just because you got your toes wet, you're still not swimming. So if you really want to swim with the big fish, look at this extended metaphor, uh, then you need the right kind
1: of book. I like that. Great answer. I appreciate your candor and the honesty here. All right. We write a book because we want to introduce someone to who we are, what we know, and open up to doing business with people. So far, so good. Exactly. All right. Are there any major components that are needed in this type of a book? What do we want to call it? A conversation starter, a introduction to me type book?
2: Yeah, I think that it does all of those things. A conversation starter, an introduction to me. And our system really walks people through how do you create that book. And I think that that's really important. We understand not all entrepreneurs are necessarily writers. Yes, we have to write memos and things, but that doesn't mean that we're writers. And number two, we're all awfully dang busy writing our own businesses. We don't necessarily have time to sit down leisurely in the backyard in a hammock and write a book. And so I think setting aside the, the time, having the right support to engage that person, you know, that potential client in conversation how do we do that with the kind of content that's interesting? So, Tony, if you think about a cocktail party, you walk into the cocktail party and you say, hi, I'm Tony. Me, 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 me. Well, pretty soon <laughs> the throngs of people are going to be moving to the snack table. And that's what happens. So it's, a, it's about a balance of, you know, how do I talk about myself enough that you understand who I am, but also understand that we're having a conversation, which means that this is a little bit about me and a little bit about you.
1: And Elisa, I'm getting this, and it makes sense. And I see that there are obviously different types of books for different purposes. And having that book that introduces one and establishes and brings about that relationship with someone is vital. I see that. That's important. And I understand that your company and you specialize in doing that for people. But you mentioned something about collating blogs, compilations, and so forth. And I see this more and more writers putting together interviews and different things that they've had. And it seems to be getting popular. And I think, well, if it imparts wisdom and knowledge, it's good. But do you see any side effect or ill after effect on that? Great question.
2: So the way that I look at a book, one, I call it a scaling tool. So technically, it's a book. You know, if you ask a scientist, they're going to tell you it's a book. But it's an important tool. And anytime that we're using a tool, then we're really targeted to what the goals
1: of that tool are. This is the Tony D'Urso Show, Just Ahead The Check continues, about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just
3: a moment. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired.
1: I got a pair of Rothies shoes for my wife. The box is a great presentation in itself with a beautiful royal blue tab that you pull along the perforation to open the box. Over and over, she said they're the best fitting shoes she's ever had. Ever. They were so comfortable that she didn't want to take them off. She wears her Rothy's around the house and says they massage your feet. I'm blown away by her response and will be getting her another pair ASAP. They're definitely worth every penny plus some. You know Rothy's come in a wide range of colors and patterns and they're available in four different silhouettes. Plus, they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair or three you love. Another major bonus... They're fully machine washable. Every time they need a refresh, you can simply toss them in the washing machine. It's like getting a fresh pair every laundry day. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash tony. R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash tony. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash tony today.
3: We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel.
0: You're listening to The Tony D'Urso Show with Key Influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDierso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests.
1: All right, we're back on The Tony DiRso Show. Today's show is about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. Annalisa writes for many local, national, and international publications, including written and produced sketches for a Telly Award-winning television show. She's been featured on Huntington Post Live for her novels, CBS, Associated Press, and Korean broadcast systems, as well as many podcasts and radio programs. All right, and now back to the chat with Annalisa. And if the goal is to scale your business if
2: the goal is to engage in meaningful conversation that increases the number of people entering your funnel, staying and hiring you, then your book should target that goal. If your goal is to, you know, get your name out into the marketplace or just to have a book that has your name on it, well, then certainly compiling blog entries or interview questions or something will do that. But You know, if you're an entrepreneur thinking about that, just consider, would you read somebody else's compilation of blog posts? What would it require for you to want to read those? And I will share with your audience, Tony, that the biggest problem I see there is that it reads like a bunch of things that were thrown together that weren't meant to be together. So that's clunky and that's difficult for the reader. We are busy and busier every single day in our lives. People have 80 million choices on what they can do in the very limited free time. If they're bothering to pick up your book, you want to make it something that they're going to stick with all the way to the end.
1: I love that answer. Thank you. And now I know why I don't buy any collating blog books or anything like that. It's, it's it's exactly correct. If I buy a book and I do buy books, it's because I want to get that wisdom and that knowledge. Because, you know, we can't learn everything from everybody in one lifetime. It's impossible. So we select who we learn from, who's an expert in what field, and we get that book from that person to get that knowledge a lot faster. Because, yes, we are smart and we can eventually learn all that. But it can take years. So if we get the book, we can learn all this knowledge in about a week or so.
2: Exactly. And the really fun thing, and I'm sure that you've read books like this, Tony, where you get the knowledge that you want, but you also feel like you just sat down and had coffee with the guy or the gal who wrote it. And there's a connection there that happened. How did that happen? All you were doing were turning bits of paper. And yet there's a connection. That for me is the real
1: beauty of a well-written book. You know, I get that feeling, yes, and some books I don't get that feeling. I want to know how to get that feeling. And I have other questions, but I want to know if there's anything else you can share on how we can put together a book that does convey that and puts that rapport with the person as well as giving them actionable advice and information. Sure.
2: I'm going to give you an answer that starts out as an eye roll answer, but I promise I'm going somewhere with it. So one of the buzzwords right now is authenticity. And this gets thrown around a whole lot. And yet people ask the question, how can I be authentic? Well, uh, (laughs) uh, there's no real answer to that. And really, that's the answer to this question. And there's a lot of fear there, right? So, So my book, Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a brainiac and I'm a little bit silly and my book is very brainy and very silly at the same time. Now, some people are going to pick that up and be like, wow, this person's Lulu. I don't want to read this book. And I think when people look at that prospect, it's scary. None of us want to be rejected. That doesn't feel good. And yet in the business sphere, choosing to be authentic and accepting the consequence of rejection means that you're present and available to the people who are going to love exactly what it is that you're doing. So in my sphere, I, you know, I'm not the only publisher out there. I'm certainly not the only publisher for entrepreneurs, but I do things in the way that I do things. So I want people to come to me who want the thing that I have to offer people who want to write a book in 24 hours and just ship it out. Well, there are programs for that. It's not mine. Those aren't my priorities. So those people, those clients should find their space. And the people who want a quality message, who want a legacy, uh, who want something that's going to start a conversation, those
1: people should find me. I love a great answer. I've interviewed many authors and I've interviewed publishers, a lot of them. And that is a great, authentic answer. I like that a lot. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Annalisa, did we discuss everything on a book being a scaling tool? You had mentioned that because I wanted to go somewhere else, but I wanted to know when I think of scaling, I'm thinking of rising up and rising up and I guess readership, viewership, popularity. Is that what you mean when you say a scaling tool?
2: Yeah. And one of the things that makes it a powerful scaling tool, and you know, I'm a little biased, but I think it's the, the most powerful scaling tool, is the whole conversation piece that we've already covered. But then what we haven't covered, Tony, is the media aspect, right? So you can't get on to quality radio shows, uh, television shows. I just did four segments of PBS. Why did that happen? Because I had a high quality book, the host read it, bada bing, bada boom, there I am on television. So you have to have that it's your it's your ticket to entry. You know, can people get on television without books? Of course they can. But if you're just, you know, a no name that nobody's ever heard of, such as I on this very day, you know, you have to have the right ticket, you have to be able to open that gate to get there. So it opens this whole world, you know, to say nothing of the people who then find you on Google and Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, I mean, any other of the major search engines uh, while they're looking for information.
1: This is exciting because as an author, I get very excited about books. I could keep talking about books for a very long time. And now the big one. People write books, Annalisa. I know people. They write books. and, And guess what happens? Nothing. It doesn't go anywhere. Now, you... I believe you're a top seller. You've sold like half a million books. Indeed. All right. Please tell us, are there any tips or advice you can give us on how to market or get our book out there as well as, of course, hire you? Yeah, well, absolutely. So
2: 50% of the people who come to me say I have an idea and I have no idea where to start. The other 50% say, "I have this book that's collecting dust in my garage. How come no one bought it? Um, And so you're right. And the way that we solve that problem, Tony, starts even before page one. Um, So there's, you know, the baseball movie. If you build it, they will come. Well, if you write a book, pretty much no one but your mom is going to read it. I'm sorry. (laughs) And so you have to create that buzz and create that generation. You have to make people want to read your book. Just because you wrote it, not because it's an accomplishment to write a book. You may feel all of those things as as the author and they're completely legitimate as the author, but you have to remember your audience and what they're looking for from your book. And so we have that as a consideration right from the get go. As I said, we're really working through those goals. If the goal is scaling the business, if the goal is being featured in the national media, if the goal is speaking on the corporate circuit, that's what's going to dictate everything from page one on what we do and how we put together that book.
1: I got it. Very, very good. Well, I want to thank you so much for giving us this information. And for the audience, you can find Annalisa at laurelelite.com, and I'll spell it Laurel, L A U R E L. Elite, E-L-I-T-E, LaurelElite.com, Annalisa Parent. We talked about Be the Expert. I love it. So we Be the Expert, we get a book out with you, and then the book becomes a client magnet. There you go. I love it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I really enjoyed this very much, and I'd love to have you back when you have another update. That sounds great, Tony. I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. This is the Tony D'Urso Show, Just Ahead The Check continues, about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment.
3: Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel.
1: Hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring and everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. That's where LinkedIn comes in. More than 610 million members visit LinkedIn every day to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. In fact, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash Tony. Again, that's linkedin.com slash T-O-N-Y. To get $50 off your first job post, terms and conditions apply.
3: Hear the stories. Be motivated. Be inspired. Join us today. Voice America Influencers.
0: You're listening to The Tony DiRso Show with key influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDierso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests.
1: All right, we're back on The Tony DiRso Show. Today's show is about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. And now we have Jason Troy join us. Jason Troy is an executive coach who helps executives, managers, and teams to maximize their leadership potential and performance, along with building and executing their career blueprint. He also has, quote, in the trenches experience, end quote, helping build a billion-dollar company and working with many Fortune 100 companies. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Jason. So great to have you on
4: once again with me. Hey, it's great to be back on the show and spend some time catching up with you.
1: Yeah, lot's happened. It's been, I think, about two years that I had you on my former show, Revenue Chat Radio, which is now merged with this show, The Tony D'Urso Show. And as we have more audience, I'd like to pick things up at the beginning and tell us, please, how did it all start for you, Jason? And what's your backstory?
4: Well, the backstory is like any entrepreneur, right? It's a windy road. I went to law school. I got my master's in communications. And from there, I decided I didn't want to practice law. I went out to Silicon Valley, was out there in the gold rush of startup land. I got to work with Steve Jobs, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, Mark Cuban, um, Mark Hurd, who is the HP CEO, I got to work with Kleiner Perkins and Benchmark Capital, the biggest VC funds, and Greylock, and I mean, there was just so many opportunities to meet so many great people, and then I went to one of the earliest um, software-as-a-service companies, and we sort of competitive against Salesforce.com, we were on the customer service side of things, And, you know, I just took on a different job, went to HP and, you know, all along the way, I loved working with people and I'm an extrovert and learning from great leaders and managers. I just picked up a lot of things that I could use and just started, you know, coaching people really on the side. And I just wrote a book, Social Wealth on it. And then, you know, went to, I did a TEDx speech and I just started working with successful people. And really helping them. And one of the things that I found out along the way is your self-awareness is a huge problem, right? It's, it's people's ceiling. And if you don't understand your blind spots and what they specifically are and the patterns that are sabotaging your success, it'll end up sinking in your career. And that was the first breakthrough I did, I had in coaching. And, and the second one that I had later on was it was really all about the relationships and your relationship networks. And so how do you build high-performing teams, and I look at teams as not only something that's internally, right, but also teams are people that you might be working with, like partners, customers, prospects, really any third parties, and how do you build high levels of trust in these relationships and, you know, levels of rapport and vulnerability and communication and collaboration and all those things, and how do you do it quickly? To really, in essence, become a top 1% performer, right? Because that's where the gold is, is when you can be at that level, because then you can create things that are game-changing, and it's much more fun, too.
1: Amazing. And in the past couple of years since our last interview, you've done so much. I want to, again, applaud you. 50,000 copies of your book. That's quite something. Hats off to you.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I changed in doing the book and for people writing a book is a couple things I did is I read a lot of the books or at least skimmed through the uh, business relationship and networking books. And the second thing is, is there weren't any how-to books out there. So I stripped out the stories and instead of making it 300 pages, I made it 120. So people could essentially get through the book and then use it and not have to flip through the stories to get to the information. And I think that really helped it be significantly different. And then I spent a lot of time researching and talking to people and figuring out what worked and what didn't work and leveraged that and tested it out myself. And so that was something I think that was really helpful in the process.
1: I gotcha. Let's tell our audience about some strategies to build high-performing and innovative teams. It's quite something. What's number one on your list, please?
4: Well, I think one of the things that people have to understand is that in order to really build the team, you have to build a foundational layer and the foundational layer Google figured out and it's psychological safety. And what they found out in 2012 to 2014, they conducted a research project called Project Aristotle. And what they were doing is they wanted to find out what individual traits and qualities that the best performers in their company had globally, because then they would hire, train, develop, promote, etc., on those individual traits that were happening because they found the people that were the best performers company-wide were exceeding their goals by at least 17%. They were getting lauded by Google execs twice as often, and there were a lot of other metrics. And so they realized that if we could do all this, we would significantly boost the bottom line without essentially any cost. And so they hired researchers to come in and look at the data. And one of the things that, you know, Google's really known for is being able to look at their patterns, understand the data. And when they looked at all this data, they were completely lost. And what they ended up finding is that it didn't matter the individuals that were on the teams. It was how they socially interacted with other people and the cohesion in those groups, And so the number one quality they found was psychological safety. And without that, they had no high performing teams globally, no matter where they were in the world. And really, psychological safety is being able to speak up, share, collaborate and communicate freely. And it's broken really down in three ways. One is that, you know, the people around you like you would know family and friends, except you have to strip out the family and friends, meaning that, you know, their experiences You have a deep understanding of what makes them tick, right? You understand their hot buttons, pet peeves. And the second thing is risk-taking. And the way that psychologically safe teams risk-take is that they look at things objectively, not emotionally. And what I mean by that is that if something goes wrong, they don't yell at people. They ask the questions, okay, well, why did we get these results? And what can we do to get better? And they have conversations such as like the Navy SEALs do, right? And Navy SEAL. I've got a friend of mine who was on SEAL Team 6 with Chris Kyle, American Sniper, and I heard a lot of great stories from him. And after every mission, they'd go back and ask questions like, what were the intended results? What were the actual results? What we do well? What didn't we do well? And what can we do better going forward? And they would look at that objectively, not to try to blame anyone, right? And they got better. Pixar did that too. Um, They call it the brain trust. And essentially their motto, because I I worked inside of Pixar, was every movie sucks in the beginning. And everyone in these brain trust meetings is on equal footing, right? There's no one higher than anyone else. And they give feedback. I mean, do this periodically on every movie. And what it does is that it really creates an environment where the people that are producing the movie, get all the feedback. Now, they don't have to use the feedback, but they have it, and it helps them produce a much better movie. And what you'll find is that in the risk-taking part of it, there was a book called The CEO Next Door, and they looked at 12,000 CEOs in their database, and the people that emotionally looked at failure, right, and even used the word failure instead of talking about things that didn't go well in a different way, got fired 50% more often um, within the next two jobs as people who didn't. So you have to really look at the, the risk operationally. And the third part of it is being able to ask questions and ask clarifying questions, right? Because once you're given a set of instructions or a strategy or tactics or you're launching a product or whatever it might be, the people on the team might be confused and oftentimes just not asking the questions people don't do it right and also by asking questions you might be able to change the process strategies tactics because the person creating it or the team creating it may have missed something so when you combine all three of those aspects into psychological safety you create a foundation that is built on a lot of trust
1: i like that the more that everyone trusts each other and feels safe inside the team with their life and what's happening, the more they can work together and deal with any issues or frustrations or whatever. It just makes for a smoother team. That's very smart. So that's, that's a very interesting strategy.
4: All right. What's another one, please? Well, I think that the one thing that people don't understand is that vulnerability and trust are connected in a way that you probably don't think about. And that the lever to really increase trust is vulnerability. And it is the most powerful one. And the challenge is, most people think they have to trust someone before they can be vulnerable, but it's actually just the opposite. And an example of this is I talked last year to the lead space um, or astronaut who was leading the space mission. And he was telling me that, you know, one of the biggest challenges that NASA has had over the last 10 years or so is actually people working together. Because one of the problems when they go up in these space missions are they're getting a lot of private funding to do experiments. And they have astronauts from all over the world who have different biases, thoughts, you know, everything else. And it's very difficult to get along. And what happened on the last couple of space missions is there was an astronaut from Russia And he was very sexist. And there was a woman who is the only space astronaut that is a woman from Italy. And they had a hard time just getting along because he fundamentally didn't believe that she was on equal footing. So they had challenges running experiments and doing things. So what NASA did was some pretty radical things is they had them do some team building exercises to go out in the desert as well. To go under stress testing, do a lot of just Q and A to get to know each other. And what happened on the last space mission was that the male astronauts got the data wrong on an experiment, and the female astronaut from Italy was pretty close to the right answer. And the lead astronaut from who was or the, the astronaut who was leading this particular experiment from Russia said, "We're going to do it her way." And that's pretty significant, right? And it's very vulnerable to have to make all of those changes. So the key is, is that you have got to open up and really share. And one of the challenges with vulnerability is that it is really dependent on events, right? You'll hear people talk about it, why the hell scare, right? And then they did something really incredible out of it. Or my company almost imploded and we took this massive action. Well, the one part of vulnerability that everyone has at their disposal is self-disclosure.
1: This is the Tony D'Urso Show. Just ahead, the check continues about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment.
3: We don't follow we lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Would
1: you like a lot of people checking out your sales page, your branding page, your podcast? Like a lot of us, are you just trying to do it all yourself? Are you taking webinars, seminars, and workshops to learn how to grow your social media and how to bring visitors to your site? Are you downloading free ebooks, buying books, buying classes, doing this and that just to learn how to get more sales, more people, more exposure? Been there, done that. Why not just get good targeted traffic and cut to the chase? Skip the extra steps and get the visitors you want now. Imagine how you would feel if you had thousands and thousands of consumers coming in each week and checking out what you have, including downloading your podcasts, watching your videos, checking out your webinars, reading your stuff, and so forth. Most people can't do it all. The learning curve is too steep. You need help to get her done. My roots are lead generation and marketing, and I have cut through the chase to get a sizable audience. I've learned from some of the best. These people are the real deal. Organic. That's what you want. Let me help. Go to TonyDurso.com and find Clicks on the Navbar. Follow the link and let's set you up for a trial. That's TonyDurso.com and find Clicks on the Navbar. C-L-I-C-K-S. Here's to your success. Hey, check out my other great interviews at TonyDurso.com.
3: This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired.
0: You're listening to The Tony DiRso Show with key influencers. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDierso.com. Now, back to Tony and his guests. All right,
1: we're back on The Tony DiRso Show. Today's show is about publishing books and social wealth with Annalisa Parent and Jason Troy. Jason spent 15-plus years working in marketing leadership positions in Silicon Valley, working with influential leaders such as Steve Jobs, Apple and Pixar, Reed Hastings, CEO at Netflix, Mark Cuban, Mark Hurd, CEO at HP, Paul Wall, president of SAP, and many others. And now back to the chat with Jason.
4: You can self-disclose and share information proactively with people. And that is extremely powerful. And everyone's done it who's listening to this and how they've done it is everyone's met someone at some point in their life for five or 10 minutes and they felt like they've known them all their life, right? And what happened is, is how that happened is someone led with vulnerability, right? If you had a video camera and watched it and what happened is you escalated it very quickly So what you did in one conversation is what most people do in 10 or 20, so you shorten the cycle significantly, right? Like another way to look at it too is think about the best team that you've ever been on before, right? What were those emotions? What did you accomplish? What did you think was possible? Versus the team that you dislike the most that you run successful on, right? Look at that emotions, the stress, everything else. Well, the other team you were very vulnerable and open with those people and they trusted you and vice versa. And because of that, you were able to do incredible things. And so when you look at it, right, Google found in their other studies that if you put all-star people on a team versus B players, most of the time the B players actually outperform the all-stars. Because all-stars can't get along because of egos and having to be right and other things that happen in that environment.
1: Very interesting, Jason. And the takeaway is I get from this is to share about yourself with the team. It's not just getting to know them, but share something personal so that everyone knows everyone a little bit more. And I think as a result of that becomes more understanding of the person, not necessarily tolerant that they don't do their job or anything, but more understanding of who they are, what they are and as a result, can work better together. And as everyone, I think, knows, a team is far stronger. Even a team of two is far stronger than two individuals together or separate. So there is definitely something to be said about a team. And by sharing something personal, it's sort of like almost the bond or the glue that makes that team more effective.
4: Yeah, it is, right? And I mean, a quick example is I was in Silicon Valley and I was in a marketing agency we were probably 60 or 70 people and we went and pitched Apple when Steve Jobs came back and we did work with him at Pixar. So that definitely did help. We were going against global agencies that were hundreds of times bigger. Right. I mean, it was it wasn't Goliath versus David. It was Goliath versus like a molecule. Right. I mean, and no one in our agency was over 35 other than the people that were running it and we went in pitches and you're like seeing the who's who of the marketing world right and bringing in agencies everywhere and we're sitting there in Silicon Valley like one group of people and we ended up winning and getting that account and I realized at that point that it's about the team and what you can do together versus having unlimited resources and unlimited amounts of people because if that were not true then that wouldn't be possible for us to have won that because that was, I mean, you could probably not even call it a minor miracle. You could call it probably a major miracle.
1: That is impressive, Jason. And I like that. Very, very good. The power of a team. You just can't say enough about that. We have time for one more strategy. What's that one going to be? You know, I think it's
4: that modeling curiosity and asking a lot of questions because, One of the things that people don't do is create the environment where the leader asks questions and the team can ask questions. And when you don't do that, you have disasters, right? You'll have Nokia, which the managers in Nokia knew that Apple was coming out with the iPhone and they knew they would get crushed, but they wouldn't tell the management because the management didn't want to hear about it. All they wanted to hear is they were going to be the leaders and their managers were going to be able to find a way and they couldn't. You saw this at Volkswagen as well, right? The president of Volkswagen told the engineers that you will make a diesel engine that's high-performing and can pass the California emissions, and that's it. And I don't want to hear anything other than that. Well, what happened in Volkswagen, which is crazy, is they ended up creating a software program, the engineers, that masked the results, And so they spent their time building a program to essentially lie. And then when they ran the test, they didn't run the back axle. And how they got away with that for as long as they did, I don't really know. But eventually they got caught and it was fraud. And when they interviewed them, they're like, well, no one in the company would hear what we had to say. right. So you as a leader have to ask questions because one, you don't have all the answers. And if you tell people you have all the answers, one, it's a lie, Right. And two, it's disingenuous and it creates people who won't speak up. And if you won't speak up, the problem with that is that silence is dangerous because it can be one way, meaning there are people that know it's just not the people running the business. And it creates an illusion that things are working when they're actually broken. So. You have to create an environment where people can talk and raise things and really, I think, invite conversations.
1: I haven't been in corporate world for quite some time, but I've never seen an environment where people could question their superiors and go that way. It was just it's just the culture. I don't know what it's like now these days, but how does someone get around that if they run into that culture where management just doesn't want to hear it? It's just do this, do this, do this. That's it. That's what we're paying you for. Go to work. How do do you deal with that?
4: Well, I think you find another job because you can't change a structure on top of a business. I mean, it's not possible to be able to do that with other people because if it's embedded at that point. Now, if it's coming from one leader, potentially you can go and approach them and share data because there's so much data out there. but oftentimes so their self- awareness will be too low, right? I mean, the data is out there is ninety five percent of people think they're self- aware, but only ten to fifteen percent actually are, and that's sort of baseline self awareness. that's not even high self awareness so I think you can try that. And if you show them the data and the research on this and the environment that will actually create successes, um, they could buy into it. And if they don't, well, then you really don't have an option because you don't have control.
1: Interesting. And Jason, would it would it be conducive at all to have weekly or monthly staff group get together meetings where people could share and give information, kind of maybe open up management to understanding more of what's going on that stuff that
4: management doesn't want to know about otherwise yeah because i think you know companies like warby parker that's how they innovated right The employees and the managers put together the things that they found wrong in the company and the business and other issues and highlighted them, and they figured out what to do with them. And I think really good companies, that's what they do, because the frontline workers and the managers are the people that are the closest to the business and the customers, and they have the most information. And so you need to do a lot of listening and asking a lot of questions because then the answers will come. And a lot of times what you'll see is those people will give you the answers, the leaders to the questions because they actually know it. Or even if they don't, they'll give you a lot of suggestions and ideas and you can piece together a solution that will work much better than the one you had. And if you don't, all you're doing is you're living a delusion and an illusion. And eventually what happens, like a poor foundation in a house, it'll eventually crumble down. So I think these days it's a requirement more than anything else. And if you don't, you'll be, you know, Nokia, Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, you know, The the government and the the bank collapse. I mean, there's so many examples and there's a lot going on today uh, of a similar ilk.
1: And I think that's where you see an exodus or a high percentage of employees leaving, high percentage of employee turnover. It's almost like things just go one way, but you got to have a two-way street to some degree to have a very good growing organization. It's just part of how we have to do business today. It just can't be one way.
4: Yes. And I think that managers really have to be more and leaners have to be more involved in this process and they have to be the cultures are and they have to make it a priority and intentionally do the things that are necessary to create things like psychological safety to be vulnerable to listen more, to get the data from people, to speak to them, right? And there's a lot of strategies that anyone can employ, right? There's not just one process or one way to get there. But most organizations are almost doing almost nothing on it, right? Or they're lip service, right? They have culture, but they give it to a culture czar who has no power, or they put it in an HR and then no one listens to it, right? It's the job of the CEO. It's a job of the executive team. Um, but they also have to model it as well, right? And a lot of times, you know, you put a values, right, in a company and no one's living them, no one's, you know, being accountable, no expectations are being set, and people being held to them. And if that doesn't happen, well, then you have a hard time creating a high performing environment. And that's why m- most teams and most companies are not performing. It's not because they can't, it's not because they don't have the people, it's because the environment isn't there in order to create people to work at that level. Um, and you saw, so I saw Gardner Group had a, date, a data point that I saw last year that only 16% of employees are working at their maximum effort, right? Gallup has a poll they do every year, and it's now 66% of employees are essentially checked out. They're not work you know, they're not engaged. So there are so many, you know, I saw another thing, 80% of executives site. Communication, lack of communication and collaboration is a reason their company is not succeeding. Like 70% of teams are dysfunctional across all industries. I mean, Edelman did a poll on trust, and it's the lowest where employees trust the senior leadership in the history of them doing it. So all these data points are out there. And this is not about like creating some emotional rah-rah culture. This is about bottom line profits, revenue creating industry-leading products and services. And so if you don't do it, you won't have it, right? And if you don't have psychological safety, is the point we talked about in the beginning, you won't have high-performing teams, high-performing culture, and have a winning business.
1: Jason, these are great strategies to talk about the workplace for employees, managers, seniors, everyone at all levels. Great stuff. We're definitely going to have to have you back on again. There's so much more to talk about. I just loved it. And these are, again, Jason Troy strategies to build high-performing and innovative teams. You can find him at JasonTroy.com. I'm going to spell that. Troy is T-R-E-U. Sounds like true, but it's Troy, Jason, T-R-E-U.com. Thank you so much, Jason. Loved it.
4: Hey, thanks. I appreciate being on the show. It's great to catch up and talk to you. I'm glad things are going well and you've changed course, which is good. And uh, got a lot of people that are wanting your help. So I like to hear that. That's very
1: good. And we'll definitely have you back again. Thank you for that. And for my amazing audience, thanks so much for listening. Remember, success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Be righteous. Join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of the Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel.